Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. pleasure to be here with you, to worship with you. We have worshiped here once before a good while ago, but it's, uh, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with the people of God. And uh, we, uh, we are originally from the Midwest. We just got back from a trip to the Midwest, so it's been kind of crazy few days to recover from that. But... Uh, we're glad to be here with you and thank you. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the second chapter of Hebrews. Before I read that, let me just tell you just a few brief words of introduction about this book. It's named Hebrews because it's primarily directed uh, to a church that was largely made up of Jewish converts, thus Hebrews. We don't know for sure who the author of this was, humanly speaking, but we know that it was authored divinely through someone who had learned from one of the the apostles and was approved by one of the apostles and who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down exactly to the very letter what God wanted them to write. These Hebrews were being tested. They were under pressure to be persecuted like many, many in our day or today to uh, forsake Christ. It was dangerous. You could lose a lot of things by confessing Christ. They were also tempted to return to a lot of the patterns of of, uh, worship that the Lord had fulfilled in Christ. And not only that, they also were tempted to worship some things that were just downright inappropriate. For instance, the first chapter talks about angels. And they were tempted to give a lot of emphasis to angels. Now, straying from Christ and worshiping someone or something else is dangerous. And so this book is written to exalt Christ, to show that he is the only one we need for salvation. And he is the supreme king and Lord and savior. And why would you worship someone or something else? And then the second chapter just to give you an idea of some of the warnings about this, begins this way. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, 
and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape, escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. And so you see he heard this message from those who had seen Jesus. So let me uh, read for us the passage uh, for the sermon today. Out of respect for the holy and infallible word of God, I would ask you to please stand as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I'm re reading from the English Standard Version. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be make li made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus for the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we know that your word is truth, but this word cannot uh, be heard by us and it cannot, be a, uh, cannot accomplish the purposes for which you give it fundamentally to lift up Jesus and draw us to him unless your Holy Spirit helps us. So send your Holy Spirit to help us to hear and to believe and to obey and to worship. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. My first paid job as a youth was mowing lawns. One family that I uh, mowed for had a small child that used to sit on the porch or stand on the porch while I mowed, and uh, he loved to talk and ask questions, particularly the question, why? He'd watch me as I mowed, and whenever I stopped the mower, there he was, asking questions. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why didn't you do this? He was never satisfied with my answers. Every time I tried to explain one thing, it was followed by another why, an endless streams of why, why, whys. I tried to be polite, but honestly, he almost drove me nuts. But asking questions is important. It's how we learn to understand something that is a mystery to us, something that we don't understand. And the more important and relevant that something is to our life, the more important it is to unravel this mysteriousness and to ask relevant questions. And surely there is nothing, or rather no one, more important or relevant to our life 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that knowing and trusting Jesus involves mystery, a number of them. One in particular that our text deals with is the two natures of Christ. That is, that he is truly the divine son of God. He is God and truly and fully human. And how can it be that the infinite God can take on human flesh and these two natures exist in one person without either one being diminished or mixed or lost. In fact, this mystery uh, has been such that in the early church, it was the subject of not only many disagreements, but actually what we call heresies, departures from the truth. Two of them, for instance. One is called Arianism, and it came from a teacher in North Africa named Arius who denied that Jesus was truly and fully God. And then there was another uh, set of of, uh, beliefs named Docetism. It came from a Greek word that means to seem or to appear. And it was a denial of the true humanity of Christ. He only seemed to be human. So in the early church, it struggled through these things, and it was at the first ecumenical church council that met in Nicaea in 325, which set down a statement which declared Arianism as a heresy and affirmed Christ's full divinity and full humanity. I, I assume that you from time to time use the Nicene Creed here. Is that true? And if you recall, it says uh, in the Nicene Creed that God of God, light of light, uh, that Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Now it's strange, in this book of Scripture, just in this one book, in the very first chapter, these two, uh, and, uh, and very first two chapters, both of these truths are set down. For instance, in chapter 1, we read, in verse 2 and following, but in these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And just a verse or two later, uh, in contrasting Jesus with angels, the psalm is quoted that says, of Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is God. But in chapter 2, we see the 
that Jesus is fully human. For instance, in verse 11, we read that for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is, we share a common humanity. He is our brother, our elder brother, and we are his adopted brothers. And then in the verses before us, we have read, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what's significant is in the verses that we're looking at this morning, which are summed up in verse 18, which speaks of this one who had become, uh, who uh, himself has suffered when tempted, he is also God, it gives us three answers to the question, why? Why did God take on true, true human natures? Why did he do this? And the text tells us basically three things. In verses 14 and 15, that he did this to destroy the works of the devil and deliver us from the power of sin and the fear of death. And then in verses 16 and 17, he explains that it is to propitiate God's wrath. I'll explain what that word means. We don't use that word just every day. And then in the last verse, he tells us that he took on human flesh to help us to help us continuously and everlastingly. You see, God gives us these answers because the, our Heavenly Father loves us. And, in hum, and when we in humble faith and belief inquire and wonder about questions about Jesus, and when we go to him and ask him, Make these things clear, Lord. I don't understand. He never tires of such questions. He doesn't get, uh, well, he doesn't uh, get driven nuts by us like I was by that little kid. And remember that the recipients of this letter were under pressure to forsake Christ and return to Judaism which had a heretical view of Christ. So the Holy Spirit guided the author to, buy, to provide resources for trusting in him, Christ and remaining faithful to him and to draw strength and assurance for, walk, for our walk with Christ, for them and for us. So let's look then at these three questions and the answers we are given. The first is in verses 14b and 15. Why did Jesus take on human flesh? The assertion followed by a statement of why he became man, the purpose of the incarnation, and it's defined by two verbs. Listen, that through death 
he might destroy, that's the first verb, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and then the second verb, and release or deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subjected to bondage. And when the passage says that it came to destroy him who had the power of death, the devil, we know that means not to obliterate, but rather to render inoperative or in in Jesus did when he took on human flesh. Satan's tyranny over man was broken. His power to hold all of mankind except one group of people in the slavery of death had been nullified. And you recall that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel went out to the whole world. And the nations were no, no longer under bondage. Now, the children, those who are in Christ, are no longer slaves. Remember what Paul says about death in 1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful passage of the resurrection. He says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us that victory. And also, he delivers the children from the bondage and fear of death. Like Moses, Jesus came to set his people free. Ever since the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, mankind had been under the slavery and bondage of sin. And Satan and his minions and our own sinful flesh and a sinful world had, uh, uh, had everything that it could want to do with us. And one of the things that because there is this fear that maybe death isn't the end of all things and maybe hell is real and it's at least mysterious to many people, people have been tormented by the fear of death. In fact, this is the plot of the human race. People will do almost anything to escape death. This fear of death still faces mankind today. The loss of our own life or the fear of the unknown or the haunting suspicion of a life beyond. But Jesus gained victory over sin and death. And he did it in the most unpredictable way, by himself dying. The purpose of the incarnation, why did Jesus become man? He came to die, to overthrow Satan's dominion and set God's children free. And this seems like a paradoxical way of defeating an enemy. Do you defeat an enemy by sending them to the battlefield and then all dying in front of your enemy? But yet it was precisely the way Satan's power is broken. This is what one writer says about this. Only the assumption of human nature could qualify Jesus to fulfill his function of redeemer. 
For his human nature fitted him to suffer and to die as man for men. That is for us. That is to, in our place, die and in our place bear man's punishment and die man's death on the cross. He partook of flesh and blood so that he might be enabled to taste death for the salvation of sinners such as us. That's why he came and took on human flesh. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And what is that gospel? It's the good news of Jesus' coming to take the punishment of our sin upon him, to die in our place that we might live, and through him to live and know his resurrection life and be forgiven from our sin. I have just one question at this point for you. Are you still in bondage to death? Do you fear to die? I used to teach young people in my, toward the end of my days as a pastor, uh, my wife and I did, and I used to teach my students that if you don't have something worth dying for, you don't have something worth living for. John Calvin, you may have heard of his name, one of the great uh, church teachers, he said this, although we must still meet death, let us nevertheless be calm and serene in living and dying when we have Christ going before us. If anyone cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not gone far enough in faith in Christ. God gave the gift of faith to one of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. Remember that? And remember what Jesus said in response to that man's simple declaration of faith? Today you shall be with me in paradise. This is the, one of the glorious truths of the gospel. Through trusting in Jesus Christ, He paid the penalty of our sin and he died death dead for us so that when we believe in him and die, our souls go immediately to heaven. And when he comes again, he comes to sound forth the voice and the trumpet and those who have died before in faith will rise and meet him even before believers who were alive when he comes and will live forever and ever with him. Do you believe in him? Do you know this love of Christ that nothing can separate the believer from? As Paul said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Truly, for the believer, death is swallowed up in victory. The victory of Christ's death and resurrection. And yes, even though when we have a loved one who dies, my wife and I talk about this once in a while. We have been married 52 years. God used her to bring me to faith in Christ. I wanted to date her, and I wasn't a believer, so she said, well, I can, you can take me to church. And so I started taking her to church, and I heard the gospel. We've been married 52 years. And sometimes both of us wonder, what are we going to do if the other dies first? It'll be hard. But you see, we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. For Paul reminds us, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus and with us. So Jesus came to take a, one reason Jesus is both God and man, is to, to uh, release us from the power of sin and defeat the devil and death. But we have a second reason in verse 17. Not only have we seen that it is to free his children from the slavery of death, that reason focuses on our need, our greatest need, but the second reason for Christ's incarnation has a particularly Godward focus. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brethren, brethren, that he might be a merciful and a high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sin of the people. Here we're reminded that Jesus' work is directed at two parties, both God and us. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. We need someone to mediate because God is so holy that he can't even look upon sin. In order to be admitted to heaven, we must be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And it is impossible for even the holiest of Christians to be perfect, much less someone who has never repented of their sins. And all history is moving toward the ultimate day of the revelation of something that we don't want to think about the revelation of God's wrath toward us for sin. You see, God is justly angry with us if we don't repent of sins. He made us for this world. He gives us all these things. And if we don't live in gratitude to him and worship him, why, that's the height of folly. It is an abomination 
Paul says in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. And unless we repent of our sin, there is that one day when we will all have to face the judgment seat. But in accordance with your hardness of your hearts and in impenitence, Paul told the Jews who were rejecting Jesus, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, that's what happens when people don't repent of their sin. They're just treasuring up more wrath of God. But God tells us of his great mercy in Christ. He, the only one who is holy and could satisfy God's requirement for righteousness, he, Jesus, had to become man to represent and mediate between us and a holy God on our behalf. But he had to be not only man, he also had to be God in order to absorb God's wrath, his infinite wrath on behalf of his children. And that's what this word propitiate has to do with, to absorb or to turn aside wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. He came to do what we needed to do to obey God perfectly, but we could not do. And he came to pay the price that we needed to pay, which we cannot pay and live. He came to live a holy and perfect life and to die in our place. So this is why the writer of Hebrews says he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and high priest in things pertaining to God. Merciful, sheer grace that caused him to take on human flesh. Yep. My wife, future wife, said I could take her to church. And I started going, and I heard the gospel, and I believed. But I didn't do anything to earn that salvation. And the Bible makes clear that the faith that I had, God gave me. Remember what God said to Nicodemus when he went to him. He said, you must be born again. You must be born again even to see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. And he wondered, how can this be? But this is another mystery of God. He gives the gift of a new heart and a new nature. And he gives the gift of faith and repentance and the gift of adoption and the gift of justification to declare that we are innocent because Jesus has died for our sin and obeyed all of God's laws. You see, this mercy is something that we can know about, but we don't have the power to be merciful 
to the extent that we want. You think of all the problems that you see around us. Doubtless you have a neighbor or a coworker or a family member who goes through things of immense suffering and you, you want to reach out, you want to do something, but it, you can't touch the level of the depth of their struggling. I remember the birth of our first child. I was in the birthing room, and my wife was having a long labor. I, I mean, long hours. Beforehand, well, I won't tell you all the things that we tried to do to speed things up, dancing, whatever. But uh, it didn't work. And so finally, the doctor administered a medication called Pitocin. And boy, did it work immediately. It worked, and I was ushered out of the room, go out and stand in the hall. And I can remember that day like I was still there. I could hear my wife's cries of pain. And all I could do was stand there in the hallway, powerless. But our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is not powerless. He took on human flesh to intervene and relieve the pain and power and misery of sin and death. Unlike the flawed high priests of Jesus' own day who were twisted by power and jealousy and shocking ungodliness, Jesus was and is faithful a faithful high priest, righteous, who ever lives to make intercession for us. He was faithful to his heavenly Father to be obedient even unto death, faithful to fulfill all righteousness at all stages of life for us, that we might obtain righteousness through faith in him, faithful to offer the perfect sacrifice he, the lamb without blemish, himself, faithful not to desert us even during the most intense suffering imaginable when he had to, to absorb that infinite wrath of God, experience the wrath of an infinite, holy, and omnipotent God. Faithful to the end, he drained the bitter cup of suffering and of God's holy, infinite wrath to its last dregs for our redemption. As one has put it, our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. This is why Jesus became the eternal son of God, became man as well. But there's a third reason in verse 18. Not only to free us from the slavery of sin, not only to propitiate God's just, just wrath against our sin through the priestly offering of himself as a sacrifice, but third, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. It's common experience that those who seem most credible to help us when we suffer grief or loss or trial 
or difficulty are those who have gone through the same experience that we have and who have weathered through the same storm of life. This is part of the power of groups like divorce recovery or addiction recovery groups. They're formed to help others persevere through the those who have learned life's lessons. For the Christian, our great struggle is dealing with temptation to sin. Temptation is a test. Get F's. And God doesn't grade on the curve. We must pass the test. But you see, not so Christ. He has passed the test, and he is able to help us. You can think of the account of Jesus before he started his public ministry, of how he was tempted in the wilderness. He had fasted 40 days. I fast a half a day, and it's a challenge. <laughs> to suffer, tempted to satisfy that hunger by Satan. Remember, you, you can command these stones to become bread. And could Jesus do that? Of course he did. Could. He spoke the universe into being. To make some bread? No problema. But he didn't. The cross but was tempted to accept a crown without the cross. These were great temptations. At the high noon of this terrible time, and he got the draw on Satan. But of course, Jesus was tempted all through his ministry because he was truly human and because Satan would never really leave him alone. He must have been tempted to silence his critics, to take vengeance upon his enemies, to sleep when he was tired instead of staying all up, up all night and praying, to choose disciples that would bicker. He was tempted. Our high priest can truly identify with us because he knows. Now, now you might object, well, wait a minute. How can Jesus really know? Because he never sinned. Well, that's true. But it's per precisely because Jesus never sinned that he knows temptation far more deeply than any of us. When we're tempted, what do we do? We yield. Thank the Lord, not every time, but way too many times. One has written these words, Jesus knows far more about temptation that we, than we do because he endured far beyond the point where the strongest of us gives in to trial. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend upon the experience of sin, but the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin which only the sinless can know in full intensity. He who fail, falls yields before the last strain of temptation. Jesus became man. He is both God and man. 
because he is able to help us. He knows. He identifies with us. And he can sympathize with us perfectly. Through his victory over sin, he's perfectly qualified to represent us between, before a holy and strong father, to shield us from temptation and to empower us to resist and to pray for us continuously at the right hand of the Father. In fact, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, that's a position of rule. And you and I can never even begin to imagine the number of times God's Son has ruled to protect us and deliver us. Once in a while, we get glimpses of that. But it's every day. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience. It says in, the, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Through the atonement, Jesus, the high priest, accomplished for his children, he brings forgiveness for sins. And he brings the power of his resurrection to break the power and dominion of that sin in the believer's lives. For sin, as Paul wrote, shall not have dominion over you. For you, not, you are not under law, but under grace. These two realities, forgiveness and power, are present in this passage before us. He who is our merciful and faithful high priest has both made propitiation for our sins and himself the victor is able to help those who are tempted. Centuries before, the psalmist cried out, Psalm 79, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. And God answered that prayer. He sent his only son to take on human flesh that as the God-man, he would come to provide us help and salvation. Truly, the incarnation is a great mystery, but... In the Bible, a mystery is not like a crime novel, a whodunit sort of thing, but it's a truth we, a mystery is a truth we can't know unless God reveals it to us. And he does reveal it to us clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. But more than that, God tells us why Jesus, the eternal divine son, became man. For this is the only way that we sinners can be saved, through his death and resurrection. And in so doing, Jesus Christ has defeated the power of death and the devil and delivered us from the fear of death. He has absorbed God's just and holy wrath due us for our sin and rendered God's God loving and gracious and just to save us and to lavish us with his love and to provide us continual help.
by delivering us from our temptations and sin. Oh, my dear friends, believe and trust this Christ. There is no one else who can help you with the things you need most. Blessed be his name. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our God, what a mystery it truly is that the eternal Son of God took on the form of a servant, of a slave, to save us from our sin. He didn't cease to be God, and he was fully man, for we needed both of those aspects of a Savior. But what a Savior he is. Oh, Lord, may we trust him and believe in him and know that he is our eternal help, our salvation, our deliverance, the one who is our all in all. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.